Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. Today, we have a great show for you, all you quant lovers. Our guest is the head of conservative equities in quant allocation at Robeco. You've read his writings in the journal Banking and Finance Management Science and the journal Portfolio Management. I think he's written like... 25 white papers on SSRN. He's also a guest lecturer, and we're really happy he's joining us today. Welcome, Pin Van Vliet. I'm happy to be on your show. Talk some quant stuff. Yeah, we can talk about anything. We can talk about surfing. We can talk about quant. We can talk about anything else. But let's dive right in. All right, so we got a quote Jeff found that you've written that says, the low volatility effect is perhaps the largest anomaly in finance challenging the basic trade-off between risk and return, as higher risk does not lead to higher returns. Still, it remains one of the least utilized factor premiums in financial markets. So why don't you, why don't you unpack this quote for us a bit? Maybe explain Laval, Anomaly, and uh, your, your thoughts on, uh, on Laval in general as a good starting point. That's great. Let's do it. So low volatility is, uh, I think, the, the biggest uh, anomaly of them all, uh, in the sense of that we really don't understand why this is the case. And also, academics and practitioners have having troubles embracing this concept. So when I started my studies, like any finance student, I learned about the, the positive uh, trade-off between risk and return. And a higher risk should, mean, uh, should lead to a higher return. But it's Empirically, not, not the case. So, Pharma French 92 showed it, but also earlier on in the 70s, this was documented. So, if you knew where to look, you, you uh, were looking at it. Um, the thing is, in academics, uh, that's the first point I want to make, is that returns are usually measured as simple returns. So, that means that all academic studies using simple returns underestimate the size of this anomaly. So, High-risk stocks look like they have a pretty low return, but if you add the compounding, uh, then it's really, really bad. So if you read through the literature, like Black Jensen's calls in the 70s, but also Pharma Friends 92, then you should know that uh, this is understating the, the, the size of the anomaly, namely that high-risk stocks uh, underperform. And if you compound it out, because high-risk stocks by definition uh, go up and down a lot, so if you go down minus 50, go up 50 again, and all, of, uh, all investors know that you lost money. But in academia, then you assume that the return is zero. So any high volatility strategy, the return of that is overestimated in academia. So that's a very important point to make. And it's not a mistake of the COPM or the asset pricing uh, model, but it's the mistake or it's the false assumption of the researchers using the, uh, the COPM to test it. Even today, with all the multiple factor extensions, the size of the, the low-risk anomaly is, is understated because of this confounding. Because COPM is a one-period model, 
And this one period is often uh, should be one month. Well, in reality, this is like one year uh, or maybe 10 years. And if you add to that, then you will see that the return uh, goes down with volatility. So if you short on volatility or risk or beta or any risk metric, then you will underestimate the alpha. Could you explain for our listeners who might not be familiar with CAPM exactly what that is? And it's kind of crazy because you have so many of these ideas in academia that get taught that or not, in some cases, not only not true, but 180 degrees, <laughs> not true. Like that, it's true, but the sign is backwards. Maybe explain a little bit what CAPM is and why it's still accepted today if some of the tenants are not accurate. Yeah, CAPM is a great theory. And I, when I teach, I also use it. And I also believe that it's a good theory. It's just very bad at describing reality. In fact, a stock with a high risk should have a high return. And that's written down in the CAPM. Only systematic risk should be priced. That's the extension of the market feature model. Market feature states that we should diversify so you get rid of your uh, idiosyncratic company risk. And the only true risk which is priced is market risk. Stocks which have a high beta or a high sensitivity to market fluctuations should have a higher return. And also, CAPM can be used in a corporate finance setting where you make investment decisions in projects then you should uh, allocate your capital to low-risk projects which have high returns. But it's a normative framework that as a theory trying to predict, uh, to describe markets, it's really poor because reality is that uh, high-risk stocks earn low returns. And it's very funny in that when I found out on, on this, so it was worked by Robert Hogan, in the, uh, I read it as an undergrad student, I was really shocked that low-risk stocks have high returns and high risks have low returns. And by the way, he was basically really attacking the, this capital asset pricing model, where he showed this model uh, might be a great theoretical model, but it's really, really poor uh, in predicting and, uh, and describing markets. So that's, that's the COPM. Uh, this is the theory, and uh, I like it, uh, but it's just not, uh, and I also base my own investments on it. To use it as a tool, but it's a very bad description of reality. You mentioned an early writer on this topic that doesn't get enough credit or sort of headlines. He's he passed away a few years ago, but he wrote a handful of incredibly influential books. If I remember, the new finance, the inefficient stock market, and a couple ideas on. We'll post these in the show notes, but fantastic reads on this topic that were really early in some of the ideas you're talking about. And so you'd written, a, a, maybe to unpack this a little more, you'd written about a decade ago, God, 2007, decade ago, uh, you wrote a paper called The Volatility Effect. And may, maybe walk us through some of like this concept of a simple alternative approach to constructing portfolios and maybe kind of some of the original ideas of that paper and, and takeaways. Back in uh, 2007, we wrote this paper, The Volatility Effect, where we basically laid out that low volatility is a factor besides factors such as size, value, and momentum. In this paper, we take an international perspective. So first, most studies are US-centric. And yes, it's half of the market cap, but the other half is international. So we showed that this low hole effect is also present in Europe and Japan, which just makes it a very persistent anomaly. Other factors sometimes don't work in other regions, like momentum has difficulties in Japan. 
So that's one thing we uh, we wrote down there. The second thing is that we found that this anomaly or this alpha uh, is getting stronger over time. So most alphas, once they're documented, they become a bit smaller. Like we've seen the value nowadays struggling for the past 10 years, much smaller than in the past eight years. But overall, it's a, it's a factor which is getting stronger over time. And thirdly, in our paper, we also gave explanations for why this might be the case. So why why could it be that low risk beats high risk thought? Now you ask about how do we do this? So a simple way to test factors is to take, uh, say, 2,000 large cap stocks or the 2,000 largest stocks in the universe. You sort them based on their historical price movement. So you sort them from low volatility to high volatility. You can also sort them from low beta to high beta. And then you dynamically construct a portfolio where you systematically buy the stocks which have the lowest. And then uh, a quarter later, you do it again because some stocks might move from low risk to high risk or then might move a decent. So if you do that, then you construct portfolios which have stable, very stable risk properties. And then you're just going to test uh, if this low risk portfolio has also uh, a low risk, uh, a low return, because that's what the CAPM, as we discussed, uh, predicts. And the fact is totally the, the world upside down. It's the other way around. It's negative. If you add the compounding to it, so the longer your investment horizon, the bigger the alpha becomes. That's also what we lay down in the article. And the interesting thing is that of all the factors out there, uh, the low vol factors have been driven by practitioners. So I'm a academic, so I'm a practitioner with also academic ties. So, uh, but also Robert Horgan was not a main academic, so he was not part of the opinion makers on the big uh, US universities. He was sort of uh, an outcast. And also, if you re read his books, it's very funny. He's really critical of the Chicago school. He makes fun of them. So I also understand why he was not loved uh, uh, by his peers in academia. But this low hole factor is something different than the others. It's a different factor, and nowadays it's more accepted. Also, uh, the work of Eng from, uh, has uh, contributed to this, and also some researchers uh, uh, like Fazini uh, and Pedersen have also brought this anomaly more to the mainstream academia. And nowadays it's more or less accepted. The interesting thing is that Practitioners have sort of uh, led it. And also, if you look at asset managers, I'm based in, uh, in the Netherlands, a beautiful country. All listeners should, uh, should come there. But it's also driven by uh, European managers. While most of the innovation in uh, finance driven by uh, Wall Street or uh, the US, while well, this is a little bit of a European uh, phenomenon and also led by practitioners. What are some of the explanations? So you think about low vol, I mean, you would think intuitively that most people would love low volatility stocks you know given the alternative with with the research showing that they outperform you've mentioned some possible explanations for the success of the strategy and or why it's inefficient everything from leverage restrictions to inefficient energy practice behavioral biases what what, what sort of specific reasons you know we always love to say why does this work What's, what are the major contributing factors in your mind? Yeah, so I spent uh, four years of my uh, life doing my PSE on downside risk. So my thesis was, could these, all these factors, so value, momentum, but also low risk, could it be explained by downside risk? So could it be tail beta? Could it be, because the CAPM also assumes uh, mean variance uh, returns or quadratic utility. So I worked on that model, very complicated, technical 
long story, four years, uh, short story, uh, not really. But tail risk is not really the explanation. You can partly explain uh, some of the low volume, some of momentum, uh, and some of small cap. I entered the industry. I came to uh, Robeco, my, the firm I'm still working with, and met uh, head of research. I said I found him working on uh, multi-factor models. So that was in uh, 2005. We did it multi-billion. We knew the work of Robert Hogan. He explains you should uh, buy stocks with uh, good profitability, good value momentum, and build factors around that. I was surprised to find out when I entered the industry that low, low risk, low hole was not exploited. And I spoke with our head of research, I, I still remember it, and I said, hey, David, why aren't we adding low risk as a factor for low hole? And then his, simple, his answer was very simple. He said, Tim, you get equity-like returns, maybe a bit better, that uh, you get lots of tracking error. And I said, pardon me, what are you saying about errors? What kind of error? And then he explained this concept of uh, benchmark deviation, which is more an agnostic term. Tracking error. Tracking error is an industry uh, concept. It's very elegant, and I understand why you should use it, but it's uh, turning the concept of risk upside down. Low hole stocks have huge tracking errors. If markets go up, they lag. If markets go down, they do better. That's called tracking error. So if you put it in a multi-factor model, where the aim is to consistently outperform a benchmark, so each year after year after year beating the index, then you then low hole uh, sucks, basically. It's, it's, it's a weak factor. And then I started to understand like, hey, this is interesting. There are limits of arbitrage, uh, benchmarks, leverage constraints. And then it got me going. I'm a bit of a contrarian guy. I thought if it's difficult to harvest for us, it's probably difficult for others as well. And I, yeah, we built a strategy around it. it we called it uh, conservative equity. Uh, and that was uh, 12 years ago. And uh, yeah, ever since, I've been working on this fascinating uh, topic. And I still, until today, when you meet clients, prospects, uh, talk about concept, then each time the benchmark comes back. So that, that's really an explanation I didn't expect. I think you've done a little too good of a job starting to educate people because I, I feel like our world <laughs> is becoming a little more knowledgeable about this concept, I would say, over the past cycle. And so because of that, you have some of the industry titans like Asnes and Arnott starting to weigh in on the last few years, this concept of particular factors and valuations and whether you can time factors. So in this quant death match, where do you stand in sort of that spectrum of, yes, it matters that factor valuations and, and therefore you can also time them or there's times they work better than others or on the flip side, maybe it's nearly impossible to time them, even though it, you can see at times when they may be expensive or not. Where, 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 where are you on the spectrum? Yes, a good one. So I, I really like fights. So cat fights are great, but also quant fights uh, or quant debate. I, I enjoy them uh, uh, even uh, every time they occur. So for example, on uh, value of timing, factor timing, there's a debate whether valuations matter. My, my standpoint is this. I think if you look at Rob Arnault, he stresses the fact that valuation matters. I, I agree with him on that. If you look at low volatility, standalone, so you simply only look at low volatility and that's it, then you might enter up buying expensive defensive. And that's currently, for the last couple of years, that's the case. And 
our research shows and his research that that's, if you do that, then uh, your expected return will be lower. So that's why I include valuation, we include valuation ever since 12 years ago in our strategies. So we do multi-factor defensive. So we include valuation or net payout yield, uh, which is also a valuation and quality metric. If you screen your low-hold stocks on that, you can still find cheapness. And you don't want to go against failure. So if you look at the generic low-hold strategy, so simply looking at a single-factor low-hold strategy, there is some timing in it. So if it's expensive, uh, the returns are lower, it's, uh, cheap returns are high. But if you do a consistently cheap low-hold strategy, then uh, this, this goes away. Timing is much more difficult or after transaction cost, it's not possible anymore because you simply are always on the right side of value. Uh, you also mentioned uh, Cliff Asmus, uh, yeah, great guy, also a pre-academic uh, builder, uh, yeah, respect him. He also emphasizes momentum. So in his thesis, he works on that, especially combining momentum with value. And I am also agree on that one. So if you only do value, like you've seen with value the last 10 years, it, it's weak. The trend is your friend. Uh, also, you, you wrote on uh, trend-following strategies map. It's a factor which works for hundreds of years. It also captures behavior. Academics also have problems grasping with momentum. So, yes, you should also always include momentum uh, in, in your strategy. So, if you do a defensive strategy, make sure you do it multi, multi-dimensional, multi-factor. So I also posted another uh, paper uh, on SFRM, and it's published in the Journal of Portfolio Management of this summer, where we say uh, if you build a strategy based on low risk, income, and momentum, so income is uh, shareholder yield, uh, that's also how it's referred to. If you do that, and we propose a simple formula, then basically you get access to all the factor premiums out there, all of them. So that's uh, HR factors, pump factor, Carhartt, and also the recently Luzon factor. And the reason I wrote that paper is that if you look in the whole academic literature for 50 years, basically if you look at Robert Hogan's work, uh, you already know 90%. So not much happened after that, I would say. But still there's some new insights. The problem is, um, how do you translate all these academic insights into a simple strategy? And that's what we've tried to do in this uh, recent paper. It's called Quantitative Investing. Made easy, the conserved formula. And there we say that the rule of three, so that's value momentum, yes, but also low risk, combining them gives you a very uh, strong uh, portfolio. So in the whole form debate, I agree with the value guys, I agree with momentum guys, but I do see that low hole or low risk is sort of not getting the attention it should get because it matters a lot, especially uh, in the long run if, if you uh, add compounding to it. And also, if you look at the academic evidence, uh, it's very persistent and strong, uh, stronger than uh, some of the others. And also, the other, the final thing about low, uh, why you should look at low hole is that the level of understanding, so why it's working, uh, that's important for a factor. So you should know why it's working, otherwise it can be arbitraged away if it's irrational behavior. That the guys buying the high hole stocks are often very intelligent, highly educated guys, CFAs, PSGs, but just who have another incentive. And that makes it very interesting that the, this anomaly can be understood from a rational uh, uh, point of view, so not just uh, behavior, but uh, uh, structural impediments. Well, you're, you're a man after my own heart talking about some of these factors. So we got low vol, 
Which, which, by the way, what's what's a generic representation of low vol? As you, you mentioned, is it is it volatility over a certain time period? Is it volatility relative to a sector or market? How, what, what's a generic uh, kind of factor expression of that? Short answer: three-year historical volatility, uh, one hundred fifty-six weeks. Okay. And you have something going. Okay, perfect. And so, in your book and in in your paper, you mentioned some really simple multi-factor portfolios. So you talk about vol. And then pairing it with uh, payout yield, which or shareholder yield, which is basically dividends and net buybacks, which is one of my favorite factors. So that gives you, like you mentioned, a little value and quality, and it has pretty high correlation to, to free cash flow, price-free cash flow, and momentum. And so, talk to me about sort of where that's finding opportunity around the world right now. Is it something that? you do globally and you know you're finding the most opportunity in any regions or countries or is it something that you're finding opportunity everywhere there's nothing looks good what's a, what's a, what would a what would a screen like that look like today we are we're international investors so i'm based in rotterdam if i uh, step on my bike then i can be in belgium in an hour so it's we're international investors by default so if i look at factors i also look at them internationally the interesting thing is that value has problems last time, but especially in the U.S. If you look at emerging markets, value is pretty good, also recently. So we do see lots of value in emerging markets. Also, um, we manage more than 20 billion in, uh, in, in our strategies. A significant part of that, about one third, is in EM. So that's where we see lots of added value. Also, there the the volatility is very high. These stocks are, are very volatile. Um, so that's where we see value. And in the U.S., uh, you see that the U.S. market is quite expensive. So there you see that low hole and value are fighting. And when factors are fighting, that's often a, a tough period. And uh, but we still find uh, relatively cheap U.S. low hole stocks. But as you know, that tech has been driving the U.S. for the past two years. Any multi-factor strategy which gives way to value uh, has some problems. And that's where momentum helps to uh, keep up a bit and uh, reduce the pain. In the you know, it's interesting. I mean, we often say for multi-factor, our favorite combination is along the lines of my buddy, Steve Shogrud says, cheap, hated, and in an uptrend. So kind of com- combining value and momentum you mentioned earlier an interesting point, which was maybe momentum doesn't work necessarily in Japan, which is sort of odd. Is is low vol a factor that seemingly works everywhere in the markets you've tested, or is there some where it actually doesn't work, or it it tends to not work as well? Is there any broad takeaways? Yeah, that's a good one. So low volatility works very good uh, within all countries, all sectors. Uh, it's getting a bit stronger so also over time. We do see that in earlier samples, uh, like in the 40s and the 50s, it's a bit weaker. Um, but still, it's, it's producing risk-adjusted alpha. Uh, what you do see is that it's only not working across asset classes. So if you look at uh, bonds versus equities, then you might say bonds are uh, low risk and equities are high risk. But on that level, you don't see it working. So across markets, there's not a, not a local effect. Also, cross currencies, uh, it's more difficult. So I'm working currently on a 200-year study on effect investing. So you will love it when it comes out. 
trend of course strong value strong but low risk uh, we see it to be across market a bit more difficult and we understand it because um, the reasons for why low hole effect low hole works is because of relative uh, utility benchmarking uh, leverage constraints and on an asset class level that's not really the case you're making your asset allocation decision not on MV or tracking it, but just on your risk aversion. But then in the second step, then when you move into the equity market, then you start to be biased to high risk. So that's very fascinating. We also find it within credit markets. So we've done work on investment rate, high yield, also very strong there. And again, you see that within those two asset classes, it's strong and across it's a bit weaker. And you really see that it's, it's important within asset classes. And yeah, uh, Matt, maybe uh, you, I know you love uh, momentum and also Cape you've been working on, but uh, yeah, I would strongly suggest also to look at uh, low volatility as a, as a factor uh, because it's, it's, it makes the ride more smooth. You just had a paper come out like a couple months ago that was kind of looking at low vol and Cape and, you know, a lot of people we chat with or probably rightfully concerned about the U.S. market here domestically, about it being expensive and what should they do in its year, depending on who you ask, your 10 bull market, but certainly coming off some really long period of strong returns. And you, you talk about in this paper how you examine low vol strategy might be a good defense against a expensive market. Could you, could you unpack a little bit about what uh, what that paper talks about and some of your some of your conclusions? Yes. Okay, Chris. Much talk indicator, uh, Nobel Prize winning. The debate basically goes around the fact does Cape predict returns? And the answer is yes, especially in the longer term. Um, there's lots of buts, uh, there's lots of pros and cons to it. What we did in our study, we said we are not going to use Cape to predict returns. We believe that with high Cape, expected return is a bit lower. However, we said let's turn it around, let's use CAPE uh, and then predict risk and do not look at return the risk. And what you then see happening is that if CAPE uh, is above 30, like today, then downside risk of equities is really big. So the predictive value of CAPE on risk is very high. And by putting these two together, so CAPE and not relating it to uh, return because people might say, yeah, return is a bit lower, but uh, who cares? Uh, bonds are low. But if you really show, and that's what we do in the paper, that high cap gives you a high expected downside risk, then we see a real danger of high valuations. So that's why I believe in, uh, in value strategy, because then you can reduce it. What we do in the paper is that we then show, of course, how is low hole doing in, uh, in such a, a scenario. And then we see that low hole stocks do uh, what they should do, namely prevent risk and reduce risk, especially in a high cap scenario. But the point is, with low risk, is people either, if people are afraid of the market, they often try to time it, and they often do it in the wrong, wrong moment. So if CAPE is high, you might conclude, let's go out of the market. But then you, miss, you will miss out the long-term equity. If you do a low hole strategy, then you can always be invested in the equity market and harvest equity return without having to time the market. And then you can uh, have both ways. So you can have your return but you will also reduce your risk. And that's what we wrote down in our paper. And now we see it resonates very well with uh, our clients all around the world who can use it for their outlook. Because many are fearful of high valuations, 
especially in the US. But then, yeah, it's too much to go out. And then uh, a defensive play might be a good alternative. Interesting. So if, if there's an investor listening to this, obviously they could just go allocate some Rebeco funds. But let's say they said, hey, I'm going to do this on my own or I want to implement. In, any general considerations to investors as to the best way to implement such a strategy or to think about it in the context of a, of a portfolio? Yeah, good one. So I also wrote a book on low-risk investing. And there uh, I described the story of my life about low risk and how, how, how it can be done and especially focus on the implementation as your question uh, uh, implies. So we say there can be three three ways to do it. So either is do it yourself and then a, a, a great way to do it is uh, screen your universe if you have a, a broker account and simply sort your stocks on beta and then throw out all the high beta stocks and then you screen on a dividend or a shareholder yield then you throw out all the low yielders, and then finally you screen on momentum, and then you only pick the ones uh, who do uh, well. Then you can end up with a portfolio of about 100 stocks, and then you can do it yourself. Rebalance each quarter, and make sure you don't trade too much. So that's for the guys who really have some uh, money, uh, who can diversify across 100 stocks, who like it, uh, but they should be aware of the details because you own one on the stocks. It, it needs some time to nurture your portfolio. That's step one. That's one way to do it. Let's do it yourself. And in the book, we provide easy ways to do it. And also, if you read my paper, on, uh, which is free on SSRN, there are enough ways to, to, to see how you can do it. The second is to buy an, uh, an ETF. There are trackers of local indices around, many of them also in the U.S., then you buy a simply track a low volume index. Uh, then the problem is that you don't include failure momentum, like uh, we both believe in that, so you should also look at that. And then you can, the third way we present is to buy active funds, active low volume funds, which have a multi-factor approach, which do include failure momentum. And one of those capabilities I'm uh, managing uh, myself as a fund manager. So that's full disclosure, but we want to say that there are multiple ways to get exposure to this great premium. This low volatility effect will benefit your uh, yeah, your long-term wealth. And yeah, your your show also says uh, it's about preserving your, your uh, uh, capital. I think that's very important in investing and often overlooked that uh, risk. People often focus on return, but risk is really uh, an important factor. So you mentioned... And by the way, your book, High Returns from Low Risk, we'll post a link in the show notes. Great book, fun, easy read. Um, you know, and a lot of factors, intentionally or not, can potentially give you bias to, towards certain things, neither necessarily good nor bad. I mean, we often talk about if you're a global investor, whether you do top down or bottom up, you end up in certain countries just because certain countries have 3,000 stocks and some only have probably 100. Are there any sectors that uh, a low vol approach traditionally will bias you to? So I imagine a listener may be listening and say, well, am I just going to end up with a bunch of utility stocks with 80% of my portfolio or and never own any Amazon? Is there any sort of tilts that this strategy ends up with? If so, is it good? Is it bad? Are there ways to correct it? All, the, all your thoughts on that. Yeah, first of all, you get you do get tilts, like with any sector, and you do get tilts to more defensive sectors. Currently, that's uh, telco utilities. 
However, Telco was not always defensive, so that's a time variant. Um, if you do a multi-factor approach, these tilts get less. And so if you, sim- if you do pure uh, no-hole, nothing else, you get more pronounced sector effect and also country effect. Things can be mitigated with a multi-factor approach and they can further be mitigated while, uh, with uh, sector constraints. So you could say, hey, I want uh, a maximum of 10% in one of the sector compared to uh, an index, then you can manage this. However, it's not. If you look at the simulations, these uh, fields are not uh, really bad, so they help your performance because it also works as a factor uh, to time uh, and to select sectors. However, you do get some uh, quite big benchmark deviations, and they, those can be managed. That depends on your risk tolerance. But we we have very mild sector constraints, and we have this uh, multi-factor approach. Both of them help get a very broadly diversified uh, portfolio. I, I wonder what your response would be. You know, certain people out there like Buffett, you know, would say, look, you know, they don't necessarily equate risk with volatility, but rather the permanent loss of capital. And I imagine some critics listening would say, hey, okay, low vol sounds great, but you know, value sounded great going into 08 and some of the value managers got taken out to the woodshed because they followed value all the way down and lost 80% drawdown during the bear market. Do you think that in terms of drawdowns and permanent risk of, of loss, what's the biggest savior or benefit of low vol? Is it pairing it with value or is it pairing it with momentum? Or is there certain unique attributes that help protect low vol in general to uh, the, the kind of dual threat of, of large drawdowns and, and permanent loss of capital? Generals tend to fight a fast war. So uh, when the French were preparing for uh, a Nazi uh, Germany, they were basically repeating World War I in their simulations. And then the Germans came out with a blitzkrieg and did it differently. And then they crashed to the French. And with investing, I see often see the same. So back in 06, when we started our low hole strategy, I met many, many people who said, yeah, Tim, uh, low hole is just value in disguise. Uh, because back then, value uh, was low risk and low risk was value. So they said, Tim, uh, I don't, low hole is, is nothing new. It's old wine. We bottle. I have my value manager, management style, and I'm fine. So they basically were looking at 01 and 2000 with uh, the burst of the tech bubble. And they thought they were prepared for the next crisis. They were not. Nowadays, any people I see, uh, and back then, local was cheap, so that was good. Back then, after the crisis, of course, people knew the value didn't offer protection, local did, so many people said, hey, that's great, it's different. Then local became expensive, and then sometimes the same people said, hey, uh, local is expensive, I don't like local. But then I said, hey, listen, at least you know it's not value. You see, it's a different factor. So first they don't like it because it's value, and then they don't like it because it's not value. So there's always a reason not to like it. That's interesting. The second thing is that uh, nowadays, many people who are preparing for uh, the next crash might think that low vol is offering them protection because back in a way, it did. I'm pretty sure it will offer protection. However, I'm not 100% sure. So that's why I think uh, in a new crisis, it could be that value will offer protection again. So why would you uh, bet on one factor? Why would you bet only on low vol if you can also include value? 
So that's that's what I believe in. But to be prepared for the next crisis, it will not be 08, it will not be 00. But if you look at all the crises of the past 100, 200 years, a mix uh, of momentum, value, and low risk is is the best because I'm fully agree that fast volatility is not the same as risk. Of course not. The thing is, risk is probability of loss and the amount of loss. That's what you want to predict. And the thing is that historical volatility is pretty good at that. It's pretty, pretty good. If you add some other stuff like uh, credit spreads from the credit market, but also momentum helps a bit. And if you add correlations, then you can build a model that really predicts downside risk because that's in the end of pattern. And volatility for me is just a way to predict it. And it's a very efficient way. And it's even better than using downside volatility. Many people think downside volatility could be better to use. But the thing is that if you use downside volatility as a predictor of future downside risk, then you throw away lots of uh, information because also what goes up often can go down quickly. So that's my, my standpoint. Uh, Predict downside risk. Don't look at the past war, but look at all the wars uh, and think about your tactics. And uh, don't bet on one factor. And use all of them, uh, at least the best of them. All right. Well said. We've chatted majority of this podcast on Laval and multi-factors. You've written a boatload of papers and publications and ideas and teaching what else is on your brain these days? Anything in particular you're working on or any papers that you think are particularly interesting that don't get as much interest? You know, it's always funny where we'll write a paper or spend many days on a blog post or something and we think it's the most profound thing in the world and the world is just crickets and no one's interested. So is, is there <laughs> anything out there that either you're uh, you're excited about or that uh, you think is deserves a little more uh, discussion? Uh, yeah, a couple of things. First, I'm very happy with the p-hacking debate now uh, going in academia. Explain to what the audience what, uh, what that means. So the problem with academic research, not only in finance, but also med- in medical research, is that researchers have an incentive to publish positive results. But that means you do 20 tests and then one out of 20 is significant. If you are a PhD or you're writing a paper, you do 20 tests, one of them is significant, and then you write a paper about it. But it's not, it's, it's just fluke, it's, uh, it's, it's nothing, it's noise. And you can always come up with a story which uh, fits the data. So that's, uh, you, that's called in finance factor fishing, in social science it's called p-hacking. Uh, it's, it's data mining, it's wrong, eh, because it gives us uh, fake, uh, fake factors. And that's a serious issue. And ever since I switched from academia to uh, being a practitioner, I found this to be the case. Then we found some great factors in the academic journals. Then we tested them on our own data, and then many were th- we could throw away. And then I was also shocked uh, to see that the results, which were uh, not true, were not falsified. Only you only knew it if you knew it, uh, but it was not published. And nowadays that's switching in academia, and I'm happy with that. So there's uh, it's going to be clean, and uh, all the big editors of the big journals now at least admit that this is a problem, and they want to do something about it, which means uh, several things. One is to accept more papers who address the hacking, so we try to falsify all the results. Second is where you uh, first pose an idea, and then do the test. Uh, that's we find it's a bit less possible, but 
especially outside finance, very relevant. That they, your work will be published no matter what comes out. Now, I'm fascinated by this, and I'm also working on factor investing uh, on a 200-year perspective, for example. I like history. I love it. I love to read about it because we can learn so much about history. So that's a couple of things which come together. So that's a project I'm on. And I also am fascinated by uh, taking factor investing outside equities into bonds uh, and into allocation. And at my firm, I'm also doing some very exciting stuff there, building uh, solutions outside equities. And uh, yeah, there's huge demand for this. And it's disruptive for hedge funds because you can simply do what hedge funds are doing, but then not for 220, but uh, at a much more attractive fee based on solid academic uh, research. Uh, and then uh, outside equities. I'm, I'm looking forward to you posting your next paper on low vol investing applied to the cryptocurrency markets. <laughs> yeah, that's where I spend hardly any time on that. So I'm a contrarian. So I just well, let everybody tweet and uh, talk about it. I just leave it. For me, my favorite crypto is gold. Uh, <laughs> I don't think you can even claim low vol even exists in crypto when, I mean, I was looking at some of them today were up and down 15% in a single day. I, I don't even know if you can claim low vol, low vol exists. And, and so you mentioned before too, low vol, it, this works across assets as well. If you're looking at sort of a, a cross asset allocation sort of concept, I know you've written on some of those ideas as well. Is, is that something, you know, how do you think about comparing assets? So if you got equities and bonds and commodities and some are just naturally higher vol and crypto, which is extreme vol. How do you think about that and putting it kind of all together in a portfolio? Is it such that you need to adjust them and say, well, look, sovereign bonds are naturally lower vol. So this kind of gets into the whole concept of, of course, risk parity and everything else. But what are your thoughts on putting the putting the bowl soup together and putting together kind of an entire portfolio? Does low vol have a, a place there too or no? Yeah, you can do it implicitly. So if you create a multi-asset portfolio, what you can do is put in local stocks, local bonds, and then you get a portfolio which has uh, a lower vol, and then you can uh, beautifully lever up. And that's also what Fisher Black recommended. So you can lever up your risky parts, and then uh, so you build a 60-40 portfolio with a 40-60 risk profile, for example. That's how you can do it. If you do across markets, so that's where the evidence is mixed. That's what I said. So local works within assets very strongly. So within equities, within credits, especially when there's leverage and benchmarks. So for example, crypto, there's not so much leverage constraint because they're all very volatile. And there's also not a benchmark. So my prior would be that I would expect there might be a, a local effect that people go for the, the most risky crypto. But I expect not the strongest results there. If you look across markets, also it's less strong. So also within commodities, you see a weaker level effect. So it's, it's particularly strong within, and then you can use it, as you said, in a risk parity approach, where you, if you give equal weight to the different asset classes, then you often see that your uh, risk, sorry, your risk return profile goes up. But then you, you go, then it uh, ties into that. And that's risk parity is not a very high breadth decision. That's common with cross market decisions. So it's just, uh, for example, with risk parity, you often give more weight to bonds. And that's sort of a binary thing. If, if yields go up or down, that will drive your return. 
I'm a bit cautious uh, on, on the multi-asset side with uh, applying local, but you can really apply strongly within asset class. So we've kind of been chatting a lot about the past. Let's let's shift our gaze to the future. You know, you mentioned one, the pressure on fees, which I think is pretty universal, but still pretty early days considering the average median fees around the world, but with hedge funds being kind of the most egregious example at, at two and 20. What are some other trends that you kind of look at our profession in the next 10, 20 years? You also mentioned the P hacking and falsifying. I can't tell you how many pitches I get that it takes about five seconds to look at and say, okay, well, that's not even possible. The sharp ratio of three and no down years the past 20 years, <laughs> yada, yada. What, what, what are some other trends you see developing either well-known or not, or kind of any... This is this is hard for a quant to quant, but any forecasts you have about kind of the future of of our world and research and everything else? Yeah, first I think passive has a long way to go still, so it can grow further and further and further. So in the U.S. it's more progressed, but still there uh, lots of room for growth. It, it can move beyond fifty percent, but that's one. And why is that? Because it's based on very solid reasoning. We trade too much and we pay too much for active uh, management. So that's the truth, uh, mathematically, and it's gonna swipe away lots of our business. Uh, so that's disrupting. Then there's always room for fundamental stock pickers, but it will be uh, less so than it was in the past, but there will always be room. Two reasons, first, to uh, set prices, price discovery, and second, uh, is that people are always overconfident and that they think they will have skill to uh, select the right manager and many other people are overconfident that they can select the right stocks. But there will always be room for that, but it will be smaller. And then in the middle between these two uh, trends, there is systematic investing, one or data in different many ways. I think that's where uh, growth will be. And the problem there is, as you mentioned, there's also lots of uh, there are low barriers of entry. If you have a, a smart guy from uh, Ukraine with a PhD in uh, physics, and you have a Bloomberg backlash, you, you can just pitch your uh, sharp to uh, strategy. I think that, that, that's where in the, in the future there will be some shakeout, where brand will also be important. So who is doing factor investing? Because there are so many factors out there, and there's this p-hacking, so you can pick the wrong ones, or you can do it in the wrong way. I think brands will come up where uh, people would say these quant shops have, have proven uh, track record across cycle, across multiple cycles. And that's, that, that's what I will see going. And then another trend is that this factor investing, quant investing, will also move outside equities. It's now quite US equity central. So I, I, I expect it to move more to emerging markets. For example, we see much less plays there. And also to markets like uh, high yield bonds, uh, investment grade bonds, and uh, international equities, small caps, uh, international. So that's that's if I look at the, the future, and uh, I think that's good for consumers and clients. Uh, fees uh, they, they will if they pay a fee, they will get alpha for that, and that's that's good. And also when you look at factors why they work, uh, suppose markets become a bit more efficient because of this. Uh, yeah, uh, this movement. I also think it's beneficial to society because capital will be allocated uh, in a more, in a better way and in a cheaper way. 
and that's for the real economy in the end good news so i'm pretty optimistic um, i like it yeah i mean we talk a lot about you know the with this recent fidelity news that they're launching zero fee index funds this this kind of barbell where the world's going to shift to market cap weighted indexes for essentially free and then people that deliver alpha or at least are attempting to you know can still charge a higher fee but probably not two and 20 but it has to be something that just doesn't look like a closet index particularly here in the u.s we have so many of these mutual funds that charge a fortune and you essentially get the s p 500 which is i think people are starting to become wise to a little more as the days go on but still don't know that it's a widely held belief you have a lot of interaction with students. What's on their brain these days? Is there anything in the general conversations you're having that either makes you tap, take a step back and get worried, or is it something that you know they they all want to start uh, mining companies for crypto in Iceland? What's what's kind of the general feedback there? Is it or does everyone just kind of hate Wall Street and not interested and wants to go work for Amazon and Google? What's the general feedback there? The interesting thing is that like banking is, is less attractive now than it was 10, uh, 10 years ago, for example, or when I studied. So what I do notice is that investing has become more a profession than it was in the 10, 20 years ago. So back uh, to investing, if you Google it, there's so much information. So in, uh, students are more knowledgeable. I do notice that they're not that wild, crazy cowboys. In fact, they're, they're quite... Uh, Conservative in a way, or uh, so I do not get worried. I, I when I speak with with students, I get basically quite enthusiastic, quite uh, down to earth, uh, knowledgeable, uh, very competitive. You do see that the international, uh, lots of our students are international at our universities because uh, I'm a Dutch native speaker, but our universities teach in English. Uh, basically, most Dutch are bilingual. But then also international students uh, come to our uh, universities and uh, they put pressure. Uh, it's uh, meritocracy here. Uh, it's really the, the best and the brightest one uh, winning. So they're very focused on getting good results and um, either starting their own uh, companies. That's more uh, in vogue now than it was 20 years ago. So that's a, that's a difference. But uh, yeah, very knowledgeable, very intelligent. And the level of knowledge of our profession has gone up once finance, which I teach. So quite interesting and not that, uh, that worrying, more encouraging out. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder if you're going to see that trend where investing in finance becomes almost more of like a boring profession where you have less <laughs> and less of these major cowboy hedge funds of like the 70s and 80s, the Soros's and the Tigers, and you have you know, the continued, I'd say just making it more professional, sort of buttoned down, kind of boring. I, I think that's probably a positive. I, I, I love the trend towards young people being interested in entrepreneurship and starting companies, all those ideas. I think that's, uh, but but these things go in cycles. You know, if you look at MBAs, any given year, what they're going into, it's, it's a pretty oscillating trend over the years. Sometimes it's Wall Street, sometimes it's consulting, sometimes it's Silicon Valley and everything else. So interesting. Couple more questions. We got to wind it down. What's 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 been your favorite surf destination you've been to? Is it you got a local spot you can't tell anybody about in the Netherlands or where? Uh, what's your favorite? Uh, my favorite is the Canary Islands. I think 
because there you can do both windsurfing, which I like, and uh, the other part, uh, there's Costa Calma, where it's shallow, you can stand, so if you didn't do it for a year, it's okay. Uh, and on the other side, then you have the big waves, um, not too big, because I'm not uh, that good, but I'm just uh, a fan, I love it, be in the water, and be washed away, uh, really feel the nature. So that's uh, something I can rec- recommend. Uh, and South Africa, that's such a beautiful country, good uh, surf there, but also... Too sharky. Uh, yes, <laughs> yeah, but uh, <laughs> no risk, no return, eh? <laughs> yeah, but good wine and everything else there. Yeah, I've been there a couple of times. I love it because there's also Dutch heritage there. People speak Afrikaans, which is uh, yeah, uh, very close to the Dutch language. And... Uh, also the drinking wine there, and, uh, it's, it's a beautiful, and it's the world in one country. Uh, it's third, second, and first world, just in one nation. And that's fascinating, because we're all living on, on, in, one, uh, in one world, uh, only separated by uh, borders. South Africa is basically a borderless country, where you have the whole world in one country, and that gives challenges. And it's fascinating to, to see that. But also, nature is uh, very, very good there, including I love it. I haven't been to either spot. As listeners know, I'm a fairly terrible surfer, so it'd be fun to get you and I on video and they can watch the two quant groms highlight reel of um, bloopers, uh, I imagine would be really funny. Last question. We always ask the 2018 question is, looking back on your career, what's been your most memorable investment or trade? Good, bad, horrific anything in between anything come to mind yes yes it's uh, a trade i did when i was a teenager i put first my my saving amount in a mutual fund bond fund uh, I, I did investing with my dad you know great guy i also mentioned in uh, the book uh mentor but i was a bit uh overconfident back then and i wanted to do uh to move into risk in the stock market and I saw this great stock. It was uh, an airplane manufacturer, Dutch Pride, recently bought by the Germans. Uh, it was in tough times, very volatile, bad momentum, bad value. But back then, as a teenager, I didn't know about factory investing. I bought the stock, hoping it would uh, rise up, and it did not. And it was a painful ride down. <laughs> it, it, it was. It, it taught me a lot. Uh, I lost most of my savings, uh, two thirds I put in, I lost. Uh, I did not put all my savings in, but back then it was a significant part of my uh, network. And the, the, why I like it is it taught me a lot. Uh, it was my college, uh, college uh, tuition fee for the real world of investing because ever since, uh, any time I, I step into the, the behavioral uh, biases, I know uh, that this was just one example. And as a quant, I exploit uh, human behavior, but I'm also very well aware of my own uh, mistakes and my own biases, and that makes you humble. Um, and so this, this is a great example. I lost money, but I think in, this, in the end, I made money out of it because it made me wiser and more experienced. Yeah, I you know, it's I'm interesting. We, we talk a lot about this on the podcast on how best to educate a young person about investing and and the challenge for so many is 
the best lesson almost <laughs> when you're young is to lose money. And uh, no one starts out with that as their goal, but but certainly that's losses and uh, you know are, are the best best teacher in the early days. I think the worst thing could probably happen is um, you know young people have many years of investing success only to build up a balance and then feel the pain when they have some more money. I I don't know what the right answer is, but try. I think I think coming up with the curriculum there would be. Uh, pretty fun and interesting. What I can add to that is that that's also why volatility works, I think, global. Because if you enter in a high vol stock or position, your learning curve is quicker. So Eric Falkenstein, another uh, academic, uh, also wrote books on low vol investing, writes about this element. That if you enter uh, high vol uh, assets, your learning curve is steeper. So it's also rational to do so. Like for me, it was rational to enter this high vol stock because it taught me a lot. It came at a price, but it also came at uh, at the return. And the return was not financial, but the return was I learned. And that's also interesting uh, to note that uh, this 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 learning behavior, like you said, like you said, it should be taught at uh, maybe to teenagers. Then I would maybe also use more volatile assets to to uh, give them a more quicker <laughs> way to learn. Uh, so that's 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 interesting where everything comes together. I love it. All right, Pim, it's been a blast. Where can people find your writings? Where do they follow you? Uh, what's what's the best place to keep up with all your goings-ons? Recently, I joined Twitter. So I'm on their Paradox Investor. Uh, my paper's on SSRAN. Uh, that's where you, uh, if you Google me, Pim, and read SSRAN, you will see my papers, set alerts for new ones. And also on my company website, there's uh, lots of uh, stuff. Some of our white pa- white papers, uh, like the one we discussed on Cape, is also found there. So, and I'm uh, active on LinkedIn. That's for uh, so the network I'm using a lot. Rebecca is one of my favorite uh, institutions as far as putting out quality investment content. So absolutely check that out. We will post show note links to all these things, white papers, books, links to... Uh, your website, Twitter, all that good stuff. Pim, thanks so much for taking the time today. Uh, thanks a lot. I enjoyed it. And I just see myself uh, on a good surf with you somewhere in Gran Canaria or South Africa. Look forward to that. Perfect. I love it. Listeners, thanks for taking the time today to listen in. You can find show notes, everything else at mebfavor.com forward slash podcast. Send us some questions for the feedback, radio shows, all that good stuff. Feedback at themebfavorshow.com. If you love the show, hate it, leave us a review and check out our new Best Investment Writing Book Volume 2. Leave a review there as well. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.